my dear brethren and sisters, young people, we have some very wonderful things to consider this evening in the verses that we've read. First of all, the closing words of Abigail in the very remarkable speech that she made to David in her endeavour to divert him from a path that would have led to disaster in more ways than one. And then finally, in her closing words, to acknowledge the hand of God upon David and that Yahweh would preserve him so that she not only endeavoured to advise him in a wise capacity, but she made every effort to encourage him in the service of his God. Now, Brother Paul, in his address this evening, a short address to us tonight, mentioned for us Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 6, which I thought was very, very applicable so far as Abigail was concerned, in that it states in that verse that Yahweh giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. And of course, Abigail was a woman who possessed those qualities. And if we read that verse carefully, that Yahweh giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding, we appreciate that that is found in the word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so Abigail had these qualities, and she possessed these qualities because she had heeded that which came from the mouth of Yahweh. She was an educated woman, a knowledgeable woman in the things of the truth, of the word of God. She understood the spirit of the truth, and she understood the way in which it should be implemented. And so she was of great assistance to David in that end. You may recall that we completed our last study with those very, very wonderful words in verse uh, 29. A man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy life. That, of course, is Saul. But then she says, giving David great encouragement that he should continue in the way of right, she adds, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with Yahweh thy Elohim. A very, very wonderful expression. We saw that the Jerusalem Bible renders it, my Lord's life will be kept close in the satchel of life with Yahweh your God. And that is a more correct rendering, the satchel of life. And you know, that was a Hebrew metaphor based upon the idea that one very carefully packs away in a bundle or a satchel items that are of particular value. And in this way, the owner may carry these possessions and these valuables about with him, knowing that they are properly wrapped and packed, and therefore they are very safe. Something that you would do, for example, if you had some precious jewels or some precious stones, and you had to transport them somewhere. You would show great care. You would show a very warm consideration for those things because to you they represent so much value. Now what she is saying to David here is that Yahweh treats you like that. You will be wrapped in the satchel of life with your God and he will care for you. And it's a reminder to us all, isn't it? What a, a wonderful faith this woman had and what a wonderful faith similarly we ourselves must possess in realising and appreciating that our God does very lovingly care for and watches over those who love him and who serve him, who walk in his ways and who put their trust in him. So that all of that contains a very wonderful lesson and may it be that in the case of every one of us that it may be said that our soul, our life will be bound in the satchel of life with Yahweh our God that he will keep us and preserve us as though something wrapped very carefully against danger or damage or loss. And so together with this, we might match a very beautiful thought from Colossians 3 and verse 3, wherein Paul wrote to the Colossians and reminded them, your life is hid with Christ in God. It's a very similar metaphor, meaning, of course, that if our life is hid with Christ in God, it's like being bound and kept close in the satchel of life. They're very, very similar expressions. So in those words of Paul, 
Your life is hid with Christ in God. There's a tremendous note of victory in this very beautiful expression. But of course, while Abigail could talk in this kind of terminology and this kind of expression to David, there is no way in the world she could ever have spoken to her husband in the same terms and with the same language. What possibly could the churlishness of a Nabal, or for that matter, the wrath of a demented Saul, hope to avail in regard to an understanding of things of that nature? Neither of these men, Saul or Nabal, put their trust and their confidence in Yahweh. Neither of them expressed any desire to be bound up and bundled up in the satchel of life together with their God, that their trust and their confidence might be in him. And yet, you see, this expression indicates someone whose life is totally in the hands of Yahweh. And we're quite sure that these words would have touched David very, very deeply as she says to him, My Lord's life will be kept close in the satchel of life with Yahweh your God. And he knew, and it would have brought him to an even deeper realisation of the fact that his life, everything about his life, everything to do with his life, was totally in the hands of Yahweh. There was nothing that he could do unless it was in accordance with the will and the purpose of Yahweh. He couldn't save himself, he couldn't deliver himself in any situation whatever, so he was dependent upon his God. And then to that she adds, the souls or the lives of thy enemies shall he sling out. You'll notice the wording there, the souls or the lives of thine enemies, then shall he sling out, as out of the middle of a sling. The Jerusalem Bible renders it, he will fling them away, as from a sling. And it's a rather interesting expression, because it's really the very opposite term to saying that one will be preserved in their life by being kept close in the satchel of life with Yahweh their God. It's the very opposite of that. In effect, it's like saying that as far as your enemies are concerned, Yahweh will tip the bag upside down and empty them out and let them go back to the earth where they belong. So it really is an expression that speaks of a forcible and a violent casting out of those who deserve such treatment. But she's already reminded him that he doesn't have to fear that happening to him. So they're very wonderful words. You'll notice she goes on then in verse 30 and says, And it shall come to pass... When Yahweh shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offence of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. So she utters those very wonderful words that are also very, very illuminating. You'll remember that we've already seen that she was aware of the way in which Samuel had anointed David to be the next king over Israel. And it seems really as though that knowledge had become more common in Israel among the tribes than uh, we possibly would consider. It certainly was known to Abigail, and remember where she lived, really in isolation in a far-flung place. And yet it is very interesting to consider that she uses that terminology. When Yahweh shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel... So it is evident that it is now known that David would be the next king over Israel. Probably the majority in Israel at this stage gave it no thought whatever and said, well, that's what we might have heard, that's what might have been said, but there's no way in the world anyone is going to wrest the throne away from Saul. Well, of course, it was never David's intention to do so, nor was it Yahweh's intention that it should be done in that way. But that's the way people think, don't they? Unless they think upon the element of faith and say, well, if Yahweh has promised that, then whatever the circumstances may be, Yahweh, Yahweh will surely make David the king over Israel. Abigail believed that, but we believe that probably the majority would not have thought along those lines. It may well have been that Samuel had made this fact known to certain key men in Israel, particularly those who were involved in the school of the prophets, and it may well be that Samuel thought it necessary for certain men in Israel to know this, what the future held so far as David was concerned, particularly in view of the fact that he had spent so much time sitting down with David during the time that David had been with him at Ramah and helping him to organise and plan the way in which the kingdom would be established and the way in which it would operate. 
I think we'd mentioned earlier, the first of Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 22, which is a passage which says that uh, Samuel and David sat down and planned out and worked out the appointments for the kingdom. So she says, when he shall have appointed the ruler. She doesn't say if. She doesn't say, perhaps he might do this for you. She says, when he shall have appointed the ruler. She has no doubts whatever that this promise concerning the anointing of David to be the next king over Israel would be fulfilled. And that, of course, is the element of faith, isn't it? That's what faith is all about. So in view of the fact that Abigail was unquestionably a godly woman, it may be implied from her words here that the spiritually minded in Israel were now looking forward to David coming forth as king to deliver them out of the clutches of the totally irresponsible Saul. The man who was letting the nation fall to pieces in the face of uh, increasing conflict from the Philistines. The unspiritual and tyrannical Saul. And so the spiritually minded in Israel were now looking for some relief. In the same way as we today are looking for relief. We're looking for the antitypical David. We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to return and to relieve us from the burdens and the bondages and the difficulties of today. So, we must appreciate the absolute faith displayed by Abigail in the reality of God's promise to David concerning the throne and in the certainty of the fulfilment of the promises. Of course, that's exactly how we've got to be. Never let the promises made to the fathers of Israel ever become vague or misty in our sight. We have to have our eyes, our spiritual vision that is, concentrated upon the hope of the future. We have to be preparing ourselves now for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the antitypical David. We have to look to him for relief from the troubles and the trials of life. And so as Abigail longed for the time, as we remember we've already seen her as a type of the bride of Christ, David as the type of Christ, she longed for the time when David would sit as king upon the throne. What she didn't know at this time, what she didn't have any idea would happen, would be that she would be called to become, <coughs> become the, bride, uh, the bride of David, <coughs> that he would send for her and uh, become married to her. She didn't know that. So in other words, first of all, we have to have a mind that is receptive to the truth, and then that leads us to the point where we receive, through baptism and our knowledge of the truth, the invitation from Christ to become his bride. So in verse 31 she tells him, This will be no grief unto thee. Or as the Jerusalem Bible renders it more accurately, You do not want to have any reason to grieve or to fear remorse at having shed blood needlessly and avenged yourself with your own hand. It's really quite a a staggering uh, statement really, isn't it? She's really saying that you don't want to have conscience trouble later. You can be thankful that Yahweh has intervened in this matter. You'll remember that earlier on, and we'll come back to that in a moment, she had said to David that she was there, not simply of her own volition, but she was there as Yahweh's instrument because God was intervening in this affair between David and Nabal, that he might save David from disastrous consequences. And therefore she looked upon herself as merely the instrument of Yahweh. We'll see that when David acknowledges what she has said to him. So she says to him, you don't want to have any reason to grieve or to feel remorse at having shed blood needlessly. And you've now avoided that. You've been prevented from that and from doing that. And these last words of Abigail here in verse 31 would have made a tremendous impression upon David. Because now in verse 32, and remember he has sat there or stood there throughout the whole of this narrative all these things that Abigail has said to him he has listened without a single interruption he has given her his undivided attention he has listened with great care because of course he likewise was a man of wisdom a man of understanding in the things of God and he was weighing up very carefully everything that she said and examining it in the light of his knowledge of the word of God and his faith in Yahweh. And so we find now David responds to all these wonderful words from Abigail. And look what he says in verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice 
And blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. You know, they are the most wonderful words. And they represent the disposition of a truly godly man. You know, if David had been in any sense like Nabal, or if he had been in any sense like Saul, he might well have heard this woman out in silence without interrupting her, and then at the end of it, really taken her to task and said, look, what do you think you are, a woman? Who do you think you are to correct me, to tell me things that I ought to be reminded of? I'm gonna, I know what I'm doing. And I'm master of my own destiny. And I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. Who do you think you are to tell me or to counsel me or to bring me advice, even if you do say it's in the name of Yahweh? David was not that kind of a man. His opening words to her were, Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. You see, David had acted out of a matter of weakness over this matter, in uh, really deciding in verse 13 of this chapter that he would go forth without really pausing to consider the matter. He had not, so far as we are aware, aware, made it a matter of prayer to Yahweh as to whether he should go forth. And he learnt this lesson and he did not forget this lesson later on in the other experiences of life that he underwent. But you see, in David's case, what he was about to do and the disaster that he was about to fall into headlong was due to impulsiveness. It was due to impetuosity, accompanied by a lack of really careful thought about what he was going to do, as expressed in verse 13 of the chapter. But at the same time, let us remember very, very carefully that David was not of that class referred to in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, where it speaks of those whose heart is fully set to do evil. He was not like that. That was not David's disposition. That was Nabal's disposition. That was Saul's disposition. But it was not David's disposition at all. He was not a man whose heart was fully set to do evil. He was not that kind of a man. And because of his faith and his spiritual mind, David was the kind of man who would respond to wise counsel from whomsoever it might come, be it man or woman, be it a king and a prince or be it a commoner, it would not matter. He would respond to wise counsel that was based upon the word and thereby be led away from the pathway which otherwise led him to sin. And perhaps we ought to ask ourselves, do we have a disposition similar to that as exhibited here by David? If somebody should approach us and warn us of a way in which we are going, perhaps of a trend in our life, perhaps some belief that we've got a little bit astray on, and somebody approaches us and says, look, brother or sister, I would like to have a little talk with you about this matter because it concerns me. And because of my love for you as a brother or as a sister, I'm very concerned about the matter and I want to express what I feel about it in the hope that it might be of some help to you. What is our action? Do we bridle against anything of that nature? Do we meet uh, anything like that in the form of a confrontation? As though to say, well, you know, who is this brother or sister? They're no better than I am. I've got my weaknesses, I know that. But who are they to try and put me right? Do we as human nature would have us do, react in that way? Or would we be more like David? You see, upon being enlightened, and this is the point that we must get above all else, and to me, every time I read this verse, is there is tremendous power in this verse. In accepting what she says, he doesn't turn around and reply to her in a purely gentlemanly way and say, well, look, I'm so pleased that you spoke to me about this matter. He doesn't say, to her, look, I, I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm so delighted to hear your words uh, that, that because I, I appreciate what you're trying to do for me. He doesn't do that. You look at the verse very closely. Upon being enlightened by Abigail as to the whole circumstances in which he had now placed himself, David's very first thought was not toward Abigail, but toward Yahweh. You see, above all else, he readily acknowledged 
the guiding hand of a wise and loving providence in the events of that day. And you know, that's a further proof of the way in which David learnt that lesson again and again, as expressed in Psalm 34 and verse 7, that the angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And that's what he's saying here. What a wonderful thing. Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me. The first one that he acknowledges is his God. Not the woman, he does that in due course. You notice the words that follow, which sent thee this day to meet me. And they remind us of her own words in verse 26, to which David is now giving full cognizance and full endorsement. When she said to him there in verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh liveth, and as my life liveth, seeing Yahweh hath withholden me from coming to shed blood. Yahweh's done it, is what she said. And he now acknowledges that only too freely. And you see, Abigail was of the same mind as David. Both of them acknowledged divine intervention in this matter for David's good and for his preservation and ultimately, of course, for the good of the entire nation. So, David, having a very quick spiritual mind, was quick to grasp a point of this nature. While, of course, the reality of this would have completely eluded Nabal, or for that matter, Saul. Would have eluded them forever. They never would have got the point of what Abigail says in verse 26. Never would have understood that. But David understood it. So you see, the very first thing he does is to acknowledge the hand of God in it. Blessed be Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, which sent me this day to meet me. And now look what he says next in verse 33. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou. And the word advice there, Rotherham has translated the phrase, and it's very quite a good translation too. Blessed be thy discreet judgment. It's really a very tremendous point. And you see, in verse 32, there is David acknowledging Yahweh, but when he acknowledges the advice as well, blessed be thy advice, He's really saying here, isn't he, as we have in Psalm 34 and verse 7, the very next verse after the one to which we've referred, which says, O taste and see that Yahweh is good. And you know the word here in verse 33 is almost identical to that word in Psalm 34 and verse 8, which says, O taste. And in some versions it's rendered in that way. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. That's what he wrote in Psalm 37, verse 8. Now here, these words are addressed to Abigail. Blessed be thy advice, thy good sense, thy counsel, thy wisdom. So the advice that Abigail offered to David was based upon divine principles. And in all this, there is a powerful reminder to us that the light of divine truth will always reveal the direction in which we are moving, either for good or ill. If only we will accept that. If we will turn to the word ourselves, or in the case of a helpful, thoughtful brother or sister, we will, we will listen to wise counsel. We will listen to an exhortation that might help us particularly in our own need. And instead of turning our back on it and say, well, it was, it was a very good exhortation this morning, uh, and certainly it applied to some of my problems, but I can do without that kind of help. You see, the word will always reveal to every one of us the direction in which we are moving, whether it's for good or for ill. And the word can direct us. It can either encourage us to stay on the path of truth, in the right direction, with the right disposition, or it can correct us as well. But it requires a discerning ear. A discerning ear. Not just an ear to listen to words. It requires a discerning ear to listen to what the Spirit said under the Ecclesians, in a manner of speaking, Revelation 3 and verse 22. But the thing is to listen, to have a discerning ear, 
to hear what is said and to act accordingly. So you see, David had been prepared to do this, heartening to the words of a wise and a faithful woman. A woman who spoke in harmony with the things of the truth. And what a wonderful example we have in both Abigail and David. Because Abigail, on the one hand, counselled wisely according to the principles of the truth, and David in his turn was sufficiently wise and humble to receive and act upon the words that she said before him. So we've got to learn to become, brethren and sisters, we've got to learn to become both an Abigail and a David. We've got to become like both of them. To be able and willing to wisely give, on the one hand, and also equally wise in understanding to receive when it comes our way. And that is a very wonderful spirit that is displayed in this chapter, first by Abigail and then by David in his response. And it is only then thirdly that he adds, And blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood. So note the order of priority that David gave to his expressions. Firstly, an acknowledgement of Yahweh's blessing in intervening in this affair to prevent disaster. Secondly, the advice, the words based upon the word of God that Abigail had tended that had caused David to rethink his position and to listen and to heed to wise counsel. And now thirdly, he turns to the character of the woman herself. When he says, blessed be thou, it doesn't just simply mean thank you very much, I appreciate it. He is acknowledging the character of this woman herself, which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood. And you know, in a psalm, David expressed the need for an extremely careful attitude toward this question. In Psalm 19 and verse 13, he wrote these words, Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And that's exactly what he'd been about to embark on, was it not? Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now here is an experience where he very nearly got involved in utter disaster through acting presumptuously. And in another psalm, Psalm 141 and verse 9, Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me, and the gins, or more correctly, the bait of the workers of iniquity. Now just consider those words in the light of what we're dealing with here. It's a very, very serious and a, and a very, very important and significant moment in David's life. Keep me from the snares which they have laid for me and the bait of the workers of iniquity. And you see, in effect, Nabal had laid a snare and set a bait for David. And he was about to charge right in and respond to it and take that bait. Nabal had laid a snare and he had set a bait. And so doesn't it teach us all that every one of us have got to be extremely careful. We have to be very guarded that we don't act precipitously, particularly on important issues, that we do not sin presumptuously as David merely did, and that we carefully, quietly and patiently heed the wise counsel of the word of God. And so in verse 34, David says, For in very deed, as Yahweh Elohim of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast stated and come to meet me, surely there would not have been anyone left of the house of Nabal. He realises how close he had come to a very, very disastrous situation. You'll notice... Again, there is a unanimity of thought between David and Abigail as he uses this expression in verse 34, as Yahweh Elohim liveth. And look at her words in verse 26. He's only reiterating what she has said. Now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh liveth. You see that? I mean, they're both acknowledging the same thing. Abigail and David were of one mind on the things of the truth. And it was this uniformity of disposition that was to provide the basis ultimately for their marriage. As it will also with Christ and his bride. They will be of one mind. And that is one reason why the bride will be acceptable to Christ in the day of judgment. 
He will say that I will have you for my bride because we are at one, as I and the Father are at one. Remember the prayer in John 17, that they may be one in us. And then it will all become a wonderful reality. It will not simply happen, happen as it is today as we train. We're in training, in preparation for the kingdom. It will then become a glorious reality. It will all be fulfilled. It will all come to life in a very real and a very wonderful way. So they will have one mind on the things of the truth. And that's what caused David to think about her very, very shortly after this as a woman wonderfully suitable for him as a wife. And so in verse 35, David received of her hand that which she had brought him and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. Isn't that wonderful? And how humble this is from a man who's going to be king. So David received of her hand that which she had brought. He couldn't turn it back again. Because here is a woman who has shown the things of the Spirit, the things of the truth. A woman who cared for him and cared for her people and her nation. A woman who showed him very, very clearly that she understood the wisdom that cometh from the mouth of Yahweh and she spoke it accordingly. He was able to recognise her spiritual character. And so here is a wonderful way in which there is another type of Christ and his bride. So David received of her hand that which she had brought and Christ will do the same thing. And you see, the thing that the bride will bring to the judgment seat of Christ, and that he will so joyfully and gladly accept, will be the character that she has developed. The spiritual qualities, based upon his own life, as she has endeavoured to imitate him in all aspects of life, it will be the qualities of character, of a spiritual character, that will draw Christ to that woman. And that will also separate him from the Saul's and the Nabal's who had no part and no place in the things associated with the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be harmony. There must be oneness of mind. There must be a mutual understanding of the sound values of the truth. And so David received of her that which he had brought and in that he typifies Christ in relation to his bride. Then he says to her, Go up in peace to thine house. I have accepted thy person. Aren't they wonderful words? And those words virtually will be the words of Christ to his bride when he accepts and acknowledges her. You know the words of Matthew 25 and verse 23 when he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so David in these words here gives expression to the fact that he and Abigail were at one in the things of the truth. And he is very pleased and very willing to acknowledge that. You know, when it says here, as he speaks to her and says, I have hearkened unto thy voice and have accepted thy person. The word accepted is one of the most beautiful words in the whole of this narrative in chapter 25. Because it is rendered from the Hebrew word norsor. N-A-S-A and it means literally to lift so that literally we would say that David has more than accepted her he has lifted her and Rotherham's margin says that in this context the phrase is more literally uplifted thy face and other versions render that similarly it is a very glorious expression because, you see, it is exactly what Christ will do for those who are found worthy at the judgment seat. Blessed are they that mourn. Matthew 5 and verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you can imagine the mind of Abigail as she reveals all this quite fearlessly and courageously to David. But at the same time, when she finished speaking, I wonder how she was feeling. For a moment would she have felt how is David going to accept this? All these words that I have so quite openly said to him. Will he accept my word? Will he accept my person? Will he accept the advice that I have endeavoured to tender to him for his good, for the good of all the young men with him, for the good of all Israel and the ultimate? And you know, it's a bit like the bride of Christ, isn't it? The judgment seat. How will the Lord receive that which I have come to offer? Isn't it wonderful? I and mean, in here we have this word to lift up. 
And that is exactly what Christ will do for those who have been bowed down under the weight of trial and tribulation and suffering and persecution throughout the ages, from the days of Abel down through history. And how wonderfully it will be that the Lord will actually say to them, Blessed are they who mourn. Those who have mourned their long wait for the coming of the Lord. They have mourned because of the world in which they have to live and develop their character and their spirituality. They will have been in mourning for awaiting for the coming of the kingdom of God. And Christ will say, Mourn no more. I will lift up your face. I will lift you up. I will exalt you. But of course, in addition to this, David's words here were really an answer to Abigail's prayer. You look back at verse 28. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy handmaid, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Of course he would forgive her. The word really is nothing to forgive. Actually, the word forgive in verse 28 is the same as the word accepted here. And the only difference between the two words is that in verse 28, the word is in the imperative tense that she is appealing to him in verse 28. The word is in the imperative tense. But in verse 35, the word is in the future tense. And how beautiful that is in itself. He is saying, this is what I will do for you. Now and in the future, I will lift up your face. It's very, very wonderful. The type of Christ and his bride. Crystal clear in these verses. And we think of the many prayers that the bride will have offered up to the throne on high. And finally they'll all be answered in every sense. And answered in the fullest sense. And Christ's bride will be accepted. And her face will be uplifted. She will no longer mourn. She will be elevated and exalted to sit at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ her wonderful groom. So she'll be brought to complete oneness and harmony with him. So with that beautiful picture in those verses, verse 32, 33, 34, 35, David's wonderful response, absolutely wonderful response to those very firm words of Abigail in her counsel to him. So now the scene changes in verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. What an incredible contrast. Here's this wonderful discourse that has taken place between Abigail and David. And how wonderfully their minds blend together because of their unity of mind upon the things of the truth. What oneness and unity and harmony they shared with each other. Now she goes home to her husband and what does she find? What does she find? Well, she finds that Nabal's got a feast going that is a real um, red-hot affair, if we might use the term. He's got all his pals there and uh, they're all going to town and they're having quite a fabulous time together, so they think. Actually, Rotherham renders it low. He had a banquet in his house like a banquet of a king. Which, of course, for a start, is an indication of his great wealth, isn't it? As we saw earlier on when we first examined the affairs of Nabal. And uh, also, too, the word feast is a word which more literally uh, relates to drink rather than feasting. So uh, what Nabal had going was uh, what might be termed today a real swinging party, a real swinging affair. And it was a real celebration to, uh, to celebrate the harvest and the fruitful year that he'd had. But notice without a, without a single thought of any spirituality, without a single thought of thanksgiving to Yahweh because he had been blessed in the way that he had. And so it says that Nabal's heart was merry within him. And I'm sure that it was. We may probably well say that Nabal and his friends were in high spirits. But we don't want to miss the most devastating point that is here. The word rendered merry is a common Hebrew word for good in the widest, widest possible sense. The word tob, it's spelled T-O-W-B. 
and it occurs just hundreds and hundreds of times. And generally the word means good, but as we've said, in the widest possible sense. We might think, why on earth is that word used here of Nabal? And the answer is quite simple, because Nabal thought that he was happy, and he thought that what he was doing was good. In the same way as, as people out in the world think, that to live things up in the way the world does, to be part of all the pleasures and luxuries and enjoyments and, and degeneracies and the degradation of the world, they think it's good. But remember that this man was a fool. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, is what his own wife had to say about him. But you see, what we need to be reminded of here is the ways of the world in the ecclesia. Because after all, remember, David classed Nabal as being a man responsible to honour the terms of the law. As we saw when we studied that section, he expected Nabal to fulfil the requirements of the law in regard to David's needs. And he had expressed his needs in that way. So what do we have here? We have the wild, unrestrained, degenerate ways of the world in the ecclesia. And Nabal thinking that all these things were very, very good. And no doubt all his friends were of one mind with him as Abigail was of one mind with David. And they all would have thought the same thing. And he wouldn't have had the slightest clue he would have had the slightest inkling that he was facing absolute, utter disaster. For it says here, he was very drunken. He was a man of the flesh. And of course his debauchery led him to such a condition that as it says here, she told him nothing. And of course when you think of it, how could she tell him anything? when he was incoherent and unable to absorb any intelligent remarks. So quite wisely, she thought, well, it's best to leave it go. There's nothing I can do about this at all until the morning light. Isn't that significant? Until the day dawn. Remember Peter says in his second epistle, in chapter 1, until the day dawn. Or as Malachi puts it in chapter 4, until the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his beams, the beams that go forth from the sun, seen so wonderfully at dawn, as the rays of the sun go forth. Now here was Nabal facing the dawn, facing the rising sun, the time of judgment. So verse 37 says, that in the morning, it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And what that means is, that she told him the whole story, of everything that had happened. In all probability, she reminded him of David's young men coming to see him, and the way in which he had treated them which had led almost to the annihilation of his entire house. And that I believe is what caused him to have a stroke. So she told him everything. And you can imagine the calmness and the firmness of the woman under these circumstances. She would have known that, that Nabal could be expected to go absolutely berserk and lose total control of himself, and perhaps even kill him. That's not beyond the realms of thought. He would have gone berserk when she told him all these things, because he didn't have the character of a David. It was not enabled to sit there while his wife poured all this out to him, and then said, look, I'm so grateful to you for doing what you've done. You've saved my life. You've saved your own life. You've saved the lives of everybody. I'm so grateful to you. Would Nabal be like that? He didn't have it in him to do that. So he would have gone absolutely berserk. Which meant, of course, that she had to act out of faith in regard to this matter. There was in many, many respects no need to say anything to him at all. Because after all, the matter had been rectified. 
with Abigail as the instrument, but with the guiding hand of Yahweh and the hand of providence overriding all these things, that she believes that Nabal ought to know. And it's not a matter of her haranguing him or stepping out of her place as a wife. She is simply explaining to him the situation that had been averted that otherwise would have resulted in all of his house being slaughtered. And so it says here that upon hearing this, and no doubt becoming horrified and appalled at what he heard, it says his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And that language describes what we would call today a stroke. He died some days later from this ailment, as we'll see in verse 38, the next verse. So it is implied from these words that as Abigail calmly and yet very firmly related the events that had occurred, Nabal, in an absolute frenzy at what she was telling him, flung himself into a state of violent reaction that his heart couldn't stand. No doubt what he'd been doing the night before was something that he'd been doing for a long, long time. And he was probably a man who thought that he owned the world but was not really in very good health anyway. And you know, really what happens here in similarity, in some respects, to Christ's judgment seat is really quite sobering. Because what happens to him to start with is really a form of judgment against him as a result of which he died. And this is Yahweh's judgment upon him. And when it says in verse 37 that he became as a stone, you know how much life and movement there is in a rock, don't you? What it's telling us is that he he became paralysed. He just suddenly flopped back on his bed or couch or wherever he was and he was like a stone. He was paralysed. He couldn't move. Verse 38 says, And it came to pass about ten days after that Yahweh smote Nabal that he died. Let us be very careful to see the message that is here. This was a divine judgment. So therefore this terrible end for Nabal would certainly have vindicated the rightness of David's cause in the eyes of the people. And of course certainly in the eyes of Yahweh. And so it says about ten days after he died and that was the divine judgment. And let's bear in mind, brethren and sisters and young people, that Nabal had been given his opportunities like everyone else who comes in contact with the truth, and especially those who are related to the truth, as the Jews were, the people of the book, were they not? In every age and generation, in that sense, especially up until the time of Christ. Nabal had been given every opportunity, and one only a matter of days before. When David had sent his young men, and sent them in the best spirit, with the best attitude, with wonderful words for Nabal and he had thrown them out on their ear and said, what have I got to do with David? Wouldn't have mattered whether it had been David or anybody else. Who it had been? What he did was totally contrary to the principles of the truth and the requirements of the law of Moses. He treated his opportunities with contempt. And of course, what perhaps was the greatest opportunity that that man had had? Even greater than that particular one incident. The greatest opportunity that Yahweh had given to Nabal was him being married to such a wonderfully spiritually minded woman as Abigail. And if that doesn't represent opportunity to walk in the way of the truth, I don't know what does. Can't we understand surely that Abigail, with the way in which she dealt with David and the knowledge and understanding and the wisdom that she had, while respecting his authority as the head of the family and the head of the house, would she not have done everything possible to try and influence him in him into a way that would be in harmony with the truth? Of course he had his opportunities, and none greater than the wonderful woman to whom he had been married. He had had his opportunities, but he had repudiated the way of the truth, and now he paid the penalty for his folly or his foolishness, as his name means. And so we might just for a moment look very briefly, holding a hand there, go to Psalm 14, 
which is a psalm concerning Nadal. Psalm 14. It's a very brief psalm, but you'll notice what it, it, it describes exactly the problem of Nadal, why he was so arrogant, why he was such a man of the flesh. And Psalm 14 begins with these words. The Nabal hath said in his heart, there is no God. And that's the blunt statement with which the psalm begins. The Nabal hath said in his heart, there is no God. And we might say, well now just a moment. Surely Nabal would at least acknowledge the existence of Yahweh, the God of Israel. In all probability he did. Verbally. But you see, it is possible for anyone even enlightened in the way of the truth to live a way of life and to manifest a kind of life and a disposition in life that is the same as saying, there is no God. If our way of life is totally out of harmony with the truth and and represents a total repudiation and a sneering rejection of the word as we've seen in the life of Nabal, it's no different to the the agnostic saying, there is no God. The The atheist says, there is no God. And the Christadelphian who lives a way of life that is contrary to the principles of the truth and out of harmony with their God, He's saying there is no God. Again, there's a parallel passage, very similar, in the second epistle of Peter, in chapter 3, when he says that brethren would would arise and they would say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? And I don't believe for one moment that Peter is saying that brethren would stand up and say, I don't believe in the second coming of Christ. By their way of life, they would show that they're not concerned with the second coming of Christ. They're too busy with this life. Either like Nabal, making merry, having a good time, enjoying the spoils, working hard to make money, to build bigger and better barns, anything and everything except having in their mind the vision of the coming of Christ. That was it. Where is the promise of his coming? No one would be literally saying that in the brotherhood. But nevertheless... That's what was said. And you know that verse is an incredible verse. All things continue from the beginning as the fathers have fallen asleep. Would you like to have a look at that verse for a moment? Because it's an incredible verse. In the second of Peter, in chapter 3, and in verse 4, and this really, as a matter of fact, just a few nights ago last week, uh, hit me in a way that had never, ever hit me before. And yet, like yourselves, I had read the verse that many times. But nevertheless, look what it says. They will say, says Peter, where is the promise of his coming? Now, we understand that, we can equate with that in the way that we just explained it. Not a literal statement denying the second coming of Christ, and that saying, brethren saying in the Ecclesia, I believe now that we're all going to go to heaven and we've all got immortal souls, or something like that. Not literally so at all, but demonstrated in the way of life. But look what motivates that principle in a person's mind. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things consider continue as they were from the beginning. Look at those words. The fathers fell asleep. And because the fathers of the Ecclesia in the first century fell asleep, everything went to pieces. And where are we today? The fathers have fallen asleep. Where are the fathers of our community? Where are those who were strongly pioneer oriented in in earlier generations where's brother Thomas today where's brother Roberts today and the greatest voice that I know of ever raised in defence of and promulgation of the pioneer standards and the pioneer teaching brother H.P. Mansfield where is he today he's asleep we need to think about that don't we That's Peter's equation with a very similar line of thought that we've got here in the first of Samuel 25. Yahweh smote 
Nabal and he died. Having been given all those opportunities and having repudiated the way of the truth as though to say, where is the promise of his coming? And where was the father of that generation? Samuel. He was asleep. And so David would now see very, very clearly that he would not need not have worried about bringing vengeance or judgment upon Nabal and his house because Yahweh had taken care of it. And we need to remember always that Yahweh is a God of justice and mercy. And in this case, David received the mercy and Nabal received the justice. And in verse 39, the final verse that we look at for the night, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh. You see, the first thing he does again is to acknowledge the hand of God in all this. He acknowledges the hand of Yahweh in this matter. The attitude of a spiritually minded man who was ever conscious, except in those moments of impetuosity and weakness, he was ever conscious of the presence of Yahweh in the everyday affairs of life, ever conscious of those things. Let's look at the brief, briefly at the example of Noah in Genesis 6. See what Noah was and why he was of that disposition. A Noah disposition existed in David. And we might say a David disposition existed in Noah. In other words, they were two like-minded men, although separated by hundreds upon hundreds of years in time. Separated in time, separated in ages, separated in circumstances of life, but of one mind in the things of the spirit of the truth. What does it say of Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 8? But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. We're all familiar with those words. Noah found grace or favour in the eyes of Yahweh. Why did he find grace or favour in the eyes of God? Because, as it says at the end of verse 9, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. And it means that Noah was ever conscious of the presence of Yahweh. He was at one with his God and tried to live in harmony with his God at all times. His God was always there to appeal to. And so David learnt the same thing in Psalm 37. You'll notice if you turn there that David manifests a word here that is identical to the spirit of Noah. In Psalm 37, these are wonderful, wonderful words in verse 23 and verse 24. He says in verse 23 of the 37th Psalm, For the steps of a man are ordered by Yahweh. You'll notice I didn't read the word good because it's not there and it shouldn't be there. It is implying a man of God who allows his feet to be set in the right path by his God, who walks in accordance with the direction that his God would have him go in. So he says, the steps of a man are ordered by Yahweh, and he delighteth in his way. And though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for Yahweh upholdeth him with his hand. Now just imagine that. That's exactly what Noah did. That's the disposition of Noah. Because you see, when you look at verse 24, though he fall, the word is more related to actually stumbling, but nevertheless it can still mean to fall. Let's, let's read it in the sense of stumbling. You know you can be walking along with somebody. You can be walking along side by side. No doubt it's happened to you many times. It certainly happens to me. And it's happened a number of occasions where someone we're walking with will miss their footing. Perhaps there's a loose stone or something or a slab of, of the, the concrete slab is not right and they stumble and you're very quick to be able to, because you're right beside them, put out your hand and hold them, particularly with an older person, an elderly person, whom we might be taking particular care over. But you see, that's what it's saying here. Though he stumble, he shall not be utterly cast down, for Yahweh upholdeth him with his hand. Now David is, is really repeating the situation of Noah. Can you imagine... For example, if you've got somebody, a very particular dear friend or brother or sister, walking on a pavement ahead of you, and they're 50 metres ahead of you, and you're behind, and suddenly you see them stumble as though they're going to fall, and you might start to run, but what are you going to be able to do to help them? Nothing. All you'll be able to do will be to pick them up off the ground and hope that they're not harmed. But if you're walking by the side of that person, and that's what verse 24 is saying, 
See, what it's saying is that Yahweh is close enough that when we stumble, if we live close to God, when we stumble, He's near enough that He can take hold of us and stop us from falling to disaster. And that's the spirit of David in verse 39 of the first of Samuel 25. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, because he lived close to God. He was ever conscious, conscious of the divine presence and therefore he acknowledged that in his daily life. And may we see the wonderful example of David and make every endeavour to develop both the characteristics of an Abigail and a David that we might be pleasing and acceptable to our bridegroom in the day when he comes to claim his bride.